Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. Rollbar is real-time error monitoring, alerting, and analytics that helps you resolve production errors in minutes. And I talked with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, a trusted customer of Rollbar, and Paul says they don't deploy a service without installing Rollbar first. It's that crucial to them. We operate at serious scale, and literally the first thing we do when we create a new service is is we install Rollbar in it. Like we, we need to have that visibility, uh, and without that visibility, it would be impossible to run at the scale we do, and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service, and without the visibility that Rollbar gives us into our exceptions, it just it just wouldn't be possible. All right, if you want to follow in Paul's footsteps and start deploying with confidence today, head to rollbar.com slash changelog. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JSPartyFM. And now on to the show. Thank you for joining us for another episode of JS Party. Uh, this is the podcast where we celebrate all things JavaScript. This week, uh, I'm joined by excellent regular panelist Chris. How's it going, Chris? Uh. <laughs> uh, we also have a very special guest this week that uh, Chris and I are already familiar with their work, so we're pretty excited to dig in about to that today. We have Nick O'Leary with us. How are you doing today, Nick? Hey, I'm very well, thanks. Excellent. Now, Nick is involved um, and is the author of an excellent project called Node Red. Now, this is special to my heart specifically because of IoT and it relates to hardware. And I actually really, really love the idea of visual programming as well. Um, and I know that Chris has also used Node Red in the past as well. So we're pretty excited just to dig into the details. But for those who are listening who might not know what Node Red is, do you want to explain what that is, Nick? Sure. So, Node Red is, I mean, the strap line is low-code programming for event-driven applications. And uh, I said that to someone today, and they said, what, what does any of that actually mean? And which is a fair question. So it's all about programming without writing code. So using visual programming, flow-based programming in your web browser to draw logically the flow of events in an application so you can very quickly express how you want events to be handled, what should happen when, when an HTTP request comes in, or you know, a sensor reading from a device, whatever it might be, an event. You can then, in your browser, draw the sequence of steps that should be taken in response to that event. So it hides away all of that boilerplate code of how do you handle an HTTP request? How do you access the device? It abstracts all that away. So as a developer, you're just drawing in your browser, that, that logical flow of events. That is super cool. And what's, what's your background in IoT? And, and, you know, does this relate to your day job at all? And, you know, what was the backstory behind how you got into this stuff in the first place? Going back a ways, in a previous role this company, I worked on MQTT, the now fairly ubiquitous protocol for IoT. And this is probably about 10 years ago. So before IoT was a term, before anyone outside of IBM knew about MQTT. And I was working on a very small footprint implementation of MQTT and its clients. So doing a lot of, and this was in the Java world, you know, doing a lot around what we then called pervasive messaging. And at the time, uh, I thought, you know, one of the, I guess, ugliest bits of the API our broker had was how you define when a message arrives on one topic, what allow you to define some code that would get run on that message to republish it on another topic. We had a Java API for that, and it was horrible. And at the time, I dreamt of, wouldn't it be cool just to have some, some way to quickly and easily sort of visually describe that in a UI? And at the time, I had a quick go at you know, trying to, how could you visualize that in the browser? 
I got so far in terms of just you know, how you can draw in the browser you know, 10 years ago. And so it probably only worked in one browser type and barely even then. But you know, the idea faded and you know, I, I sort of stopped playing with that idea. Fast forward a few years and I was in our IBM's Emerging Technologies group where we do lots of client projects, proof of concepts, first of a kinds, you know, projects where you meet with the client one day and you'll have two weeks to work with them to deliver something to you know, show some sort of result, but typically around emerging technologies, areas that you know, mainstream bits of the business don't work. You know, this isn't just taking IBM products off the shelf. And we were doing a lot of what was then more IoT, you know, devices, plugging in random sensors, doing random sorts of integrations between different systems. And, you know, after the nth time of writing some code to open a serial port to get GPS data or whatever it might have been, it sort of rekindled this idea I'd had earlier about this visual way to map MQTT topics. And I sort of thought, well, you know, we're, I guess it must have been six or so years since I'd last tried. Let's have another go. What can you do in the browser? Stumbled across D3, which just made it trivial to do nice, you know, flow-like diagrams in the browser. And in an afternoon, I knocked up this workspace. You could drag something on and draw a wire between them. And I showed a colleague saying, now just imagine if there was a button that when you click that button, that was then running and that was actually doing something. And he looked at me completely deadpan and just said, well, go on then. <laughs> so, you know, back to my office. And the next afternoon, we had the very first version of what would become Node-RED of you know, a tool in the browser that I could drag these boxes on and draw a mapping between two different MQT topics, hit deploy, and the Node.js runtime would subscribe and publish as needed. And then, you know, a couple of days later, my colleague needed to plug a serial port in. So he wrote a serial node. Well, in fact, he asked me to write it and I put him off for 24 hours whilst I completely rewrote the whole code to allow it to be more pluggable so that other people could write nodes. But, you know, a couple of days later, we had a GPS node. A few days after that, we had a TCP node. And just because of the nature of the projects we were doing, we kept stumbling across, well, wouldn't it be great if we had a node that did X or a node that did Y? And that is the first you know, snowflakes turned into a snowball, turned into an avalanche of just, here's a tool that we're developing it because it's helping us deliver real client projects. It isn't just some side project toy. And that, you know, that was a great place to, in those early days, validate what we were doing. It was useful. Can you describe what a node is? I mean, so, the, mm. the, yeah, there's like, people are going to be like node, Node.js. Yeah. We shamelessly overload a bunch of terminology. And, and again, being a visual thing, it's one of those things that I'm far more used to talking about being able to point at a screen and show it and let, letting a picture speak for itself. So in Node-RED, you have these nodes and a node is some sort of functionality and it's a well-defined piece of functionality. So you might have a node, as I mentioned, a node that represents a reading from a serial port or a node that lets you set properties on a message, a node that lets you talk to Twitter and send tweets, whatever it might be. So each node is self-contained, it's well-defined, and the key thing is nodes don't know what they're wired to. You know, they are just given some data or they listen for an event, they do some work, and then they send out a message in response. And that message just being, is a plain JavaScript object, which can have whatever key value pairs you want on it. But by convention, and this kind of reveals some of the MQTT heritage, um, messages have a payload property. And we like to say the payload property is where the interesting information goes. So in the case of a serial port, the data we read from the serial port will be on the, in the payload property. But there might be other properties depending on what the node's doing. Uh, so for example, the, the Twitter node that listens to tweets, we put the text of the tweet in the payload, but then we set a property called tweet to the full however many kilobytes of metadata that come along with every tweet these days. And it's that flexibility, again, which sort of speaks to how you can easily extend what you do with Node-RED. You're not constrained to only being able to set certain properties. And this convention of using the payload does mean nodes can be written to, by and large, just work when you start wiring them together because they are passing, you know, they, they know to use the payload. I find it really interesting that 
you started out with MQTT pretty low to the metal, like actually implementing the spec. I mean, I've actually used your Arduino PubSub library mm. a lot. And thank you. You saved my butt in uh, a lot <laughs> of customer meetings just because they didn't want to use a full SDK for, you know, the actual IoT infrastructure we were using. And so your library was much smaller and was much more lightweight. And it it's interesting when you talk to a lot of people who have been developing on the metal like that. Usually what en- ends up emerging every time is you get tired of that and you just want to create something that is this really lovely, you know, easy to use interface that you wish you had. Is that sort of why you chose to do it in the browser and chose to use JavaScript to do it? Like what sort of took you from the low metal all the way up? Like, I guess just from that perspective. I think going back to those days of doing the MQTT stuff, the day job was predominantly Java and doing Java implementations. And, you know, at that time, the browser wasn't really a space for creating the UIs for products, like it is much more predominantly now. You know, it was Java Swing and it was, you know, all those sorts of toolkits. And, oh, that was just, you know, a horrible experience, you know, for for developing it. It was just slow and cumbersome. So, yeah, it was recognizing that, you know, the browser is, and, you know, and at the time, JavaScript is just becoming more ubiquitous for creating rich UIs. You know, why constrain yourself to a particular toolkit, you know, a language toolkit? You know, do it in the browser and then, you know, you, you know if you wanted to run it on a, in a Raspberry Pi that um, you, know, you haven't got a display on or things like that, you know, it, it's not a desktop app. It's, it's something you can just point your web browser at remotely. And again, that, that was one of the things we found very early on was about two months into the project, we ended up doing a project in an ice cream factory where we had to retrofit a whole bunch of sensors to this particular line so that they could gather data and do some interesting data analytics. But we were there just to help them gather the data from the sensors. And that was three Raspberry Pis, Arduinos, things wired in, and Node-RED on each Raspberry Pi to coordinate, you know, synchronize gathering data. And this, this place was like 200 miles away from the office, so it's not somewhere we can just pop in. And they phoned up saying they'd had to replace one of the sensors on the Arduino, so the 0 to 5 volts reading now mapped to a different pressure range. Um, you know, when could we come back to rebuild the code to make, get sensible data? Uh, whilst I'm on the phone to him, I logged into the VPN, fired up the web browser, and in Node-RED, I could just change the one number to represent <laughs> the new mapping, hit deploy. Before he finished asking, when would we be able to come back on site to fix the code? So again, that, that ability to use the browser so you can access it remotely, securely, all that good stuff does make for a, a, a nice developer experience. I really like that magical story. You also mentioned event-driven before too. And I think that anyone who's used hardware with JavaScript knows that that event-driven model actually works extremely well with things like payload sending and, and reacting to events and interrupts and things. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, I mean, that's the bit I've not mentioned was, you know, when I sat down to tackle this problem of how to do it, how to create this sort of UI tooling, this was then the first serious thing I ever wrote in Node.js. This was also part of the day job was keeping up with new technologies so that when a client came in and asked for something rapidly, you know, we, we had the experience. And at that point in time, I'd been meaning to do something with Node for a while but I hadn't really. So this was my excuse to start kicking the tires with Node.js and learning about Node.js. But again, it was a fortuitous choice because, as you say, the event-driven nature, you know, in, in hindsight, you know, of course it was the sensible choice, but you know, it was just good luck at the time that that's, that's the direction we went and we've not looked back. I didn't want to take you out on, on, a, on, on too much of a tangent, but, but you brought up this thing where the, the ice cream factory has all these raspberry pies. And on all these Raspberry Pis, there's an instance of Node-RED running. And so I use Node-RED, I've been using it for years, and I would always have like a Node-RED server, and all of my things would talk to that. And so I'm wondering what, I I don't quite understand, like why would you want to have all these different instances of Node-RED running all over the place and talking to each other? Well, yeah, this was two months into the project, so uh, two months into the life of Node-RED. So, you know, I, I wouldn't claim necessarily we followed every best practice we've learned along the way, but you know, this was at the time the approach that made sense. So we had, because we had an Arduino on, attached to each Pi doing more real-time data capture. So, you know, we had to capture 
peaks and troughs of pressure sensors that would last less than a second. So the Arduino is busy spotting those peaks and troughs. And when it spots them, it just writes over serial a couple of numbers. So we had Node-RED on each Pi just because it, it made it easy then for each of those Arduinos to just write its data over serial and not us having to worry about keeping those Arduinos on a network and all, all that overhead. And then one of those Pies was in charge. And at that point in time, we needed capture data. It did a UDP broadcast, which we had flows and all the other Pies in Node-RED listening for. And when it received that UDP broadcast, that triggered each of the Pies to capture for the Node-RED flows to capture their data at that point in time. So I think it was just the nature of we didn't exactly know how many things we needed to, how many different sensors we were strapping onto this line. We didn't know how many pies we'd, you know, we went with a bag full. It was kind of just the expedient way to do it at the time. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes sense then if you have this, every pie has an Arduino and the Arduino is not on the network itself. Well, something's got to be on the network. And so, you know, Node-RED already has the, the serial, uh, serial node, and so you just pull the data out and, and, and send it with Node-RED, and that makes sense to me. I guess that's probably because now I tend not to build things that don't have Wi-Fi in them or some <laughs> sort of network connectivity, and so it's like, oh, well, I guess bef- before we had like an ESP8266, you would need to plug your Arduino into something else to get, to get that get it over the network yeah and in this case when we turned up they showed us the big steel box that all of our kit would be living inside because at the end of every day they get a pressure hose and the whole thing gets washed because it's you know food production so this big steel box was not conducive to wi-fi <laughs> so we had literally one ethernet cable coming into this box so interesting constraints of real world environments yeah, I really like this pessimistic viewpoint. Like if you if you think about it, you've almost pretty much halved the amount of devices that have to remain on a network, um, which effectively halves your headache because most of the issues with IoT is actually the I part of IoT. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this, I mean, for us, the key thing here was um, the data capture. Yeah, and, and in fact, if memory serves, each of those node reds just wrote to a file and those files then got uploaded by a cron job regularly. So, you know, it was a nice example of using Node-RED as you know, just one small part of a bigger solution. You know, those files then went up to the bigger analytics platform where they could do all the heavy lifting using the more appropriate tools. And one thing I think gets overlooked with Node-RED is it's, yes, you know, you built it for IoT, but it, it's not, I mean, you don't have to have an IoT application to want to use it. So you could, so if you know services like IFTTT, right? So it's just like, we'll set up a thing that listens for this and then it goes and triggers something else. You can run your own service that does that with Node-RED because all Node-RED, you could set up Node-RED, okay, let's ping this RSS feed and, and see what changed. And if that changes, then go and fire off an email or something, right? Yeah, it's just, the, there's a lot, you can do and it's not just iot absolutely and you know we're quite consciously moving away from being overtly talking overtly in the context of iot that's where we've come from and you know that's always a strong use case for it you know i said at the start you know, node-red is low-code programming for event-driven applications we used to call it a visual tool for wiring the internet of things anyway you're right it's anything event-driven so whether it's REST APIs, integrations. I mean, I've got a whole ton of Node-RED flows running on the internet, handling a whole bunch of GitHub webhooks, for example. It just makes it really quick and easy. I've got a whole bunch of Alexa skills at home that are backed by Node-RED running in the cloud, um, just because it makes it so quick and easy just to spin something up to handle the request and, again, not have to worry about all that boilerplate code you need to, to do it.
This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice. It is so easy to get started with Linode. Servers start at just five bucks a month. We host changelog on Linode cloud servers and we love it. We get great 24 seven support. Zeus like powers with native SSDs, a super fast 40 gigabit per second network and incredibly fast CPUs for processing. And we trust Linode because they keep it fast. They keep it simple. Check them out at linode.com slash changelog. Okay, so what companies are out there using Node-RED right now, and, 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 and what are they using it for? So, uh, great question, Chris. So we've got quite a healthy collection for, for an open source project, uh, a healthy collection of other companies who are uh, making use of Node-RED. To slightly avoid that question initially, I mean, this is one of the big things we decided with Node-RED to develop as an open source project, and we, we got there really quickly. You know, it was about six months into the life of it, we decided to open source because we saw the real value was building a bigger community around it. And, you know, that, that has suddenly borne out. So today, other than ourselves, Hitachi are probably the main other contributor, and they are very heavily using Node-RED as part of their own IoT platform. Great examples out there you can go find about the sorts of things they, they use it for. But, you know, it is, is quite central. And so they've become a great contributor to the project. And then there's, you know, there's a long list of, uh, well, it's interesting to see how it, how it breaks down. There's a load of companies who create hardware. So industrial controllers or industrial gateway type machines. You've got people like Multitech, Opto22. There's a company in the UK called IA Connects. They all create hardware for interfacing, whether it's with uh, building management systems or industrial automation. They create gateway devices and they have built Node-RED as part of the software stack on those devices. And for them, it's all about their users are not necessarily developers, but they understand the environment they're running this hardware in. You know, they are system engineers or they, are, they own a building. So Node-RED and its higher level of abstraction allows, makes it easier for them to help define the behavior of this hardware. Nick, um, real quick, are those particular usages a replacement for a PLC, or is it like something in, in addition to that? Can you just explain what a PLC is for those back home? I, I cannot. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> Nick can. <laughs> so PLC is a, I won't say a programmable logic. It's one of those abbreviations that you take for granted. And when someone puts you on the spot, so programmable logic controller. So it's the bit of hardware that will talk to the actual machines and it's where you can program their behavior. And those are often fairly proprietary devices from the different manufacturers. So these different industrial gateways, you know, some are complementary to PLCs, some will sit alongside and that they will have on them the APIs to talk to PLCs, but then provide, try and open them up. So your Node-RED flows on those devices will be able to talk to the PLC to get the raw data, but then give you much more freedom as to what you then do with the data because of the, you know, the palette of nodes. And then some, like the building management systems, those sorts of things, again, they're all sort of designed to, to sit in, sit alongside whatever the standard hardware is out there. They're, I think all these companies, you know, they're trying to, trying to use these open tools to try and create a more e open ecosystem for these sorts of environments, which have traditionally been very sort of stovepipe. You know, if you buy one manufacturer, you have to buy that manufacturer for everything because that's your only option. So you've got device people, and then you've got people using it in the cloud. So I mentioned Hitachi. I know Siemens have got an offering around Node-RED. NetApp have got a modified version of Node-RED for, for one of their products. Particle, so Particle.io, you know, great IoT company creating really cool devices. They've got their current beta of their Particle rules engine. So you can actually define rules for your IoT data using Node-RED. And then there's a long list of companies, you know, big and small, who are playing around with Node-RED. You know, some already have commercial offerings based around it. Lots of people using it internally and you know, rather than creating products on the back of it, but you know, just using it for what it's meant to be used for <laughs> internally, that type of stuff. So it's quite rich and varied. And I think it does reflect the fact traditionally it has come from an IoT background. So you know, lots of those examples are sort of IoT based. But we know there's some interesting companies doing, I mean, there's one in particular who do chat services for massively multiplayer online games. 
and they have built a system using Node-RED that takes a real-time stream of all of the chat messages going on in a game. And the service they provide is it allows linguists to define rules to identify abuse and uh, you know, people griefing other players. And it allows the game publisher to choose how do we respond in-game to you know, when you see one player being abusive to another. So a great example where you need language experts because it has to handle, it's not just English, of course, it has to handle every human language. So you have the linguists who are experts in understanding those rules and patterns of behavior. Node-RED allows them to define that logical flow of how they can detect the behavior where they don't have to write code to do it. So again, that's, I mean, that's a great example, completely away from, from the IoT domain. Yeah, and you know, a whole host, you know, some people use it for integration of systems, lots of different things. I mean, one of the interesting challenges is, and this is one thing that I found, you know, this was my little side project. And every now and then we just stumble across someone new who's using it. And it's not that they've come to us for help to use it, or you know, maybe they have in the forum, but using a personal email address, so we have no idea. And we'll just stumble across someone else doing something really cool with Node-RED that we had no idea about. And you know, I think that's one of our interesting challenges as an open source project is you know, we every now and then just put this appeal out to the world saying, look, if you're doing something cool with Node-RED, let us know, because we would love to be able to talk about it and you know, be able to point to these great examples of how it's being used. Right. Yeah, that's a common complaint with a lot of popular open source projects, where if you don't know who's actually using your tool unless you do something like build telemetry into it, and then you know, people have a hard time with that. And so you might not know who's actually using Node-RED. There's probably many more companies that, that are using it that you don't know about because they haven't reached out to you or, or made it made it public. Yeah. And, you know, I, I like to take that as, as <laughs> a sign of personal success that, you know, we've managed to actually create something that these people have been able to do what they've done without having to come knock on my door after five minutes and say, how do we do anything? So, you know, there, there's a, on the flip side, you know, the downside is we don't, you know, it's hard work to find out about these guys, but on the flip side, I think it, it, it sort of reflects what we've managed to achieve within the project that, that these, these companies have been able to do that with confidence on their own. Mm -hmm. One way that I get around this with open source hardware and uh, the libraries that I maintain is if anyone opens an issue or request, I will immediately ask them, by the way, would you mind sharing what you're doing with it? Because that's really the only way that you can find out. But in your case, Nick, you actually have something that might give you a few clues, which is when you go on NPM right now, if you just put in the term like Node-RED, you get like a ton of results. Like I'm talking nearly 3000 packages that at least reference Node-RED. How, at a guesstimate, like how many of those are community contributed compared to ones that you've actually authored yourself? And does that give you clues about how it's being used? Uh, so I can tell you as of right this moment, there are, as the page loads, there are 2,216 NPM modules that contribute extra nodes into the Node-RED palette. So, you know, that 2,216. So about, I think, I forget how many of those are ours, but I think about 100 of those might be ones that we in the Node-RED project have published at one time or another. So, you know, there is well over 2,000 truly third-party modules out there for Node-RED. And I think, again, in terms of this, how you go about building a community on a tool like Node-RED, the real strength was always about not gatekeeping who could extend its functionality. So each of these nodes, it is an NPM module. And as long as the module has got the Node-RED keyword, then our flow library will pick it up, regularly scans NPM looking for modules with the Node-RED keyword. We do a bit of work to examine it and say, does this actually contain a node or is someone just using the keyword for, for the fun of it? And if it contains a node, it automatically gets listed in our flow library. You know, aside from a couple quality checks that it's got a readme, a couple of things like that, there is no gatekeeping. So you know, literally anyone is able, to, as long as it meets a basic set of criteria, it will get listed in the flow library. And then within Node-RED itself, we have the palette manager where you can go in and install extra nodes from within Node-RED itself. So that shows you know, that there's this huge appetite for extending it. And I mean, of course, the other fact we've got are just the raw NPM download stats. 
And you know, in fact, we hit 2 million installs of Node-RED a couple of weeks ago, which we're sort of saving, making a big noise about because we've got some stuff coming up, which we're going to roll that sort of as one of the highlights of, of some news we've got coming up. So, you know, and we do, I do keep a track of the NPM stats just out of interest. And, you know, we know that each NPM install is not a brand new user. Of course, you know, people reinstalling or whatever, it, or restaging, whatever it might be. But it, you know, over time, it's shown there's a nice steady growth of people coming to Node-RED of installing it. I wish with the NPM stats, we could just find out a bit more. But, you know, that's the fun of NPM. That's an incredibly large ecosystem. It sounds like it's probably pretty straightforward in order to create like a, a node or like an add-on for Node-RED. So what is the process there? It seems like, you know, you look for quality checks, but do you just create a main JavaScript file in a root directory and like what sort of other i guess like integration features do you have for, for wanting to get started with that so a a node in the node red palette consists of two things it has a javascript file which is a node module as you know I'm sure everyone's will be familiar with with a very simple sort of boilerplate structure of uh, creating an object that is a node and registering it with node red runtime you have to export you know, function with the right signature. So that's the JavaScript file, and that determines the runtime behavior of the node. Then there's an HTML file, which defines the edit dialog for the node in the editor, help text, and its editable properties, and you know, a bunch of metadata that the editor needs. They get packaged up in an NPM module, and again, there's a bit of metadata goes in the package.json file to help Node-RED. When Node-RED loads the module, that metadata tells it which JavaScript files it needs to go and load dynamically because they contain nodes. So Node-RED will load the modules as long as they load okay. When you open up the editor, the HTML file gets sent up to the editor to register it in the editor side. So it's really only those two things, the JavaScript file for the runtime behavior, the HTML for the editor, and a package.json, just metadata to pull it pull those two together. And a single NPM module can contain multiple nodes can contain multiple of those files as long as they're all listed in the package.json file. So there's the node object that you have to implement is, is quite a simple thing. The, the node registers a listener on the input event, which will get triggered whenever the node is handed a message. It can do whatever it wants. And at some point it will call the send function on its prototype to send the message on to whoever it might be wired to. That's it at its most simple. It can get more complicated, but at its heart, that's all it is. You just register an event to handle messages coming in and you either send a message on or you don't. So there's two sides then to, to every node. There's the, the, the runtime where this is what the node's actual behavior is. So if that is a node that wants to tweet or something like that, that is a node module and it runs in Node.js and it reaches out to twitter.com and blah, 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 blah listens for events and, and sends, sends events on. And then there's this, this portion that runs in the browser. So that's the front end. And so when you load up Node-RED, if you install it and then you go to the server in your browser, you see this big layout. And I think it, it might not be obvious to people who, who haven't used it before. Can you kind of explain the difference between the runtime and staging? And so like how when you make changes in the browser and draw things out, what happens when you, when you click that button that says, okay, like stage this, publish this? Sure. So when you're drawing your flows in the editor, the editor is building up a model of what you're creating. And essentially it is a JSON array. And when you hit that deploy button, the editor exports your whole configuration as JSON. And it is just a long array of all of the nodes you have with their key value properties, with some other metadata, including the list of who's wired to what. That JSON is sent back to the runtime, and then the runtime just basically breaks that down, iterates through all those the nodes in the array, and starts creating the corresponding objects in the runtime, and then passing each one the configuration. So when you create a node, when you write your code for a node, the constructor function you create takes one argument, which is your properties that have been defined in the editor. So the runtime creates all those objects and 
handles all the wiring and all the state management that goes on with that. So a Node-RED flow is essentially JSON code or a, a JSON string. So it's not doing code generation. This is one of the questions we do get sometimes is, you know, once I've created a flow, can I then export that as a just a Node.js app and then customize it? And that isn't the Node-RED model. So Node-RED isn't generating JavaScript code that you could then go edit. It generates a JSON flow definition that you can then import in another Node-RED runtime, or you can share with others, whatever it might be. But that's, that's sort of the artifact of what a Node-RED flow is. It actually sounds super approachable to get started with that. Thank you for explaining that. It kind of makes me want to now figure out if I can maybe contribute a module back. That would be really cool. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's one of those, we've tried to make it as simple as possible. And again, the real value in Node-RED is the richness of that palette. Now, I get all sorts of notifications every time the Flow Library finds something new, and you know we've got a Slack channel that, and it, we tweet about new stuff, and just seeing that steady stream of updates and new stuff coming through, it's always amazing how yeah you know, what people are creating just from uh, really obscure APIs that someone's had a need to. There's a brilliant node, and I've never really dug into who's created it, but it is a node that can give you a list of German public holidays. Now I keep me, and it's been around for a long time, and I keep meaning just to ping its owner and just find out, you know, with no sense of criticism, why? It's awesome that you've created that. I'd, I'd love to know that your, your use case for needing a node that can tell you the German public holidays. But it's also great seeing, I always get a buzz when you see a node that's obviously being made and maintained by a company for their own API, rather than, you know, someone in the open source community creating an, a node for someone else's API. Because, you know, that, that's also a nice sense of validation that here's a company who are paying attention to what can be done and, and are embracing the open source community by uh, getting their, their thing, whatever it might be, uh, enabled within the Node-RED ecosystem. That's very cool. Could you also just quickly tell us why you're so popular in Japan with Node-RED and what happened there? What's the story? Um, yeah, I don't know what sparked it, but there is one of our most active communities is in Japan. So they have a Node-RED user group. They have monthly well-attended meetups. Um, I have been invited <laughs> and dialed into a couple of their meetups and sat through an hour of Node-RED presentations in Japanese, not understanding a word, but seeing some really nice demonstrations and slides. But yeah, there seems to be, I don't know what exactly sparked it, but there, yeah, there does seem to have been a really... Mm -hmm awesome community has sprung up in Japan to the extent, I mean, clearly Hitachi based in Japan and, you know, they have a large investment, but the Node-RED user group spans multiple companies and, you know, individuals and companies in, in Japan. And people often ask me, you know, why haven't you written a book about Node-RED? <laughs> and, you know, it, it's on the to-do list, but I, I slightly tongue-in-cheek point them at the three Japanese books about Node-RED on Amazon you know, of which I have copies of two of them on the shelf behind me. And I just think it's brilliant. And as Node-RED is an editor, it's you know, very user-centric. Early in its life, I was strongly encouraged to build in internationalization in the UI. And I sort of begrudgingly did it because it was like three months of not adding any new features of just building in infrastructure to support multiple languages, finding every message and pulling it out into a catalog. It was a slog, but we did it. But by virtue of doing that, then along comes Hitachi, who now maintain the Japanese translations. We have Chinese translations. We have Korean translations. We've recently gained German translations. Yeah, I, I think, again, that has certainly helped the fact that, uh, you know, here is a tool that if it was English only, sure, it would get adoption around everyone, you know, resigns themselves to having to use English around the world. But, you know, the fact that, particularly for the Japanese market, they are able to use it in Japanese. You know, clearly that has helped there. And as ever, interesting challenges around an open source project and maintaining translations, because that is hard work, you know, particularly when it's, it is a language that you are neither a native speaker nor... I can get by in a number of European languages, and to, I, I don't mean conversant, but I can look <laughs> at a translation and, and you know, with Google Translate, figure it out. But Japanese, Chinese, I would not have the confidence at all to, you know, when we get a pull request fixing a spelling, it's... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
This episode is brought to you by Algolia, search technology to power your business. Trusted by Twitch, Stripe, Adobe, and many more. Even us. Yes, we use them to power our search, and we love the way they obsess over that developer experience. They let us fine-tune the index for the best results and report back what people are searching for, even servicing search terms that get zero results, which we love. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free, or head to algolia.com to learn more. So we wanted to finish up by talking about what sort of exciting things are happening with Node-RED in the future. Like I heard that there's an upcoming release happening, which is version 1.0, which is a big deal. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So about two years ago, we realized there are enough people using Node-RED in a very stable in-production commercial setting that we really ought to have at least a 1.0 version number. But we knew there were some technical changes we wanted to make or enhancements that kind of rounded out the first chapter, if you like, of, of Node-RED. So we set out a technical roadmap to get us to 1.0. And in that blog post two years ago, I said, you know, we're not going to put dates on it, but I would hope to be there in about six months time. Well, here we are two years later, and that six months has clearly not quite worked out. But we are on the cusp of releasing Node-RED 1.0. And when I say that, you know, chances are by the time people are listening to this, we may have already got there. You know, it is it is that perilously close. So yeah, we're we're doing a one dot zero release, which is you know kind of a big deal. And if, funnily enough, the code's all there. We've done beta releases; they're there today. I mean, the hard part is just getting all the non-code stuff in place. So you know, updating documentation, doing some video tutorials, all this good stuff to really make sure this one dot zero release. You know, we we want to get across this message really, as I say, that Node-RED is good for production. There are people who say, well, that's just for prototyping or, you know, you wouldn't build a real application in it. And yeah, we've got all this evidence that suggests otherwise. And, you know, I think we want to use this 1.0 release to really amplify that message that you know, Node-RED is, it is stable, it is production ready. Now, of course, alongside being a major version change, we are taking this opportunity to tidy up some of the rougher or some of the bits that we have chosen not to tidy up because they could have a bit more of an impact. Things like, you know, in the editor, we've completely overhauled the CSS naming because it was a bag of, of random CSS classes to the extent there were still some CSS classes dating back to the original D3 example I cribbed from, you know, six years ago. Yeah, so we've properly namespaced everything. But one of the features we have is people can create custom themes. Now, of course, those custom themes are going to be broken in 1.0 until they update their CSS classes. So it's things like that. But for most end users, that isn't going to touch them at all. There are some other more significant changes in the runtime. So, I mean, this is a bit deep in the weeds, but the message passing between nodes would typically be asynchronous, but there were cases where it could be synchronous just by virtue of event emitter itself in Node.js being a synchronous API, it all depended on what a node did as to whether things would be handled asynchronously or not. Well, we're, move, we're going fully asynchronous with 1.0. So every, every event of a message going between nodes will become asynchronous because that unlocks a whole bunch of cool stuff in the future, a whole bunch of new features we've got in the roadmap. So a flow debugger, you know, create breakpoints in your flow and actually pause the runtime and see the state of messages in the system. That's, that's in the roadmap. Um, being able to build in better timeout handling across your flows, a whole host of stuff. That's awesome. No more Zalgo, right? In Node-RED where, where you, you're, not, you're not sure if it's going to be synchronous or asynchronous. I know I've bit, been bit by that before, and that's great to hear that, that uh, that's getting done, especially. Yeah, yeah, it is an interesting challenge. I mean, this is the, uh, you know, we are taking this opportunity to make some what would be breaking changes, but we're trying to absolutely minimize the breakage to a smaller subset of as users and as containable as possible. You know, because, you know, I could take a, note, a flow that I created on the second week of the project's existence and import it today and it will still work. And, you know, that's been part of, you know, our mantra around stability of, of Node-RED and, you know, Getting to 1.0 will just improve that stability moving forward. And like I said, it, it unlocks a whole bunch of interesting stuff that we can then start getting to in the future. 
When you say we, I, I know that you're still responsible for the bulk of this work and you work on this a lot. Do you, given that you have a day job, you work at IBM, like, do you get an opportunity to work on this as part of like being on the clock or is this completely off the clock or can we talk about this? Cause you know, I want to make sure that there's credit where credit's due. No, sure. So I am now in a position where <laughs> I am paid to work on Node-RED and I am paid to run the Node-RED project. So yeah, I'm, I'm in this position where what started out as a side project and was evenings and weekends found its way through to being something I could justify working on because it enabled my day job through to the last couple of years where I've been a developer advocate for IoT. You know, I could justify spending time on Node-RED because it helps the developer advocacy mission to the point where now in the last few months, I am now overtly an open source developer focused on Node-RED. So, yeah, I have managed to turn what was my little side project into my day job, which is, yeah, it's a great place to be. I mean, it has its ups and downs of, you know, now actually, you know, Node-RED is the job as well as the side project. So often those evenings and weekends still get consumed. But, you know, that I'm sort of, I, I do that in full knowledge of also there are times when I will just turn things off and I will walk away from the project. I think I found the right balance between the day job and the side project aspect of it. Yes, I'm, you know, I'm paid to maintain and run the Node-RED project, which is great. And as a growth project of the OpenJS Foundation, you know, one of our goals is to improve the breadth of contributors to the project. As I mentioned, Hitachi are a big contributor and they've got you know, some really exciting features that they're interested in and they will be contributing to as, as we move on. We know there are others with interest and you know, it's that perpetual challenge with open source of just trying to encourage more people to get involved and more people to, to help maintain and, and make it a sustainable project. You know, that, that's one of my goals is once we get to 1.0, personally, you know, taking a bit of a foot off the gas in terms of just writing code and looking at, well, now how can we expand the sustainability of the project, get more people involved, um, encourage more people to see if we can identify, is anything inhibiting people getting involved as contributors? Or are they just happy that, you know, we're doing such a bang up job of it that, you know, they don't need to get involved. So. But, you know, this is not unique to us, you know, perpetual open source challenge. So something I want to look at in the coming months. Are you the only active maintainer right now? Uh, no. Uh, so, so my colleague here who still has a day job that's not overtly Node-RED, um, the co-creator of it, Dave CJ, you know, he and I continue to maintain it together. And I'd say that there's a really good community of, I was going to say two tiers of contributor, and I, I don't mean that to in any way, judgment of quality. It's more, you know, there, there are the core people who know the code backwards, which it tends to be me and a couple of others who can dive in and, and implement the meatier stuff. But then there's a great community of people in the forums and on the issues list who are helping field just the dozens of questions we get in the forum every day. And, you know, that, that's been one of the great things about the community is we've got a really strong community of people willing to just to take time to help others. You know, that's a, a workload that, you know, I don't have to, you know, I keep an eye on it, but, you know, I don't have to step in very often at all because you know, our great community is there helping each other. Even though there's a, a, a subreddit and it, it gets new messages, I would say, every day. Yeah, yeah. And I have to admit, the subreddit is one I don't spend any time in. <laughs> and like there's a Facebook group I stumbled across and, you know, I've joined it and I've now been made an admin. But I do tend just to keep an eye on it. And, you know, I try to, when someone asks a really meaty question, I do, I, you know, I, I give them a hand, but then I do point them to our discourse forum just because that, that's where the real activity is and that's where the real heart of the community is. You know, we try to help people where they ask the question, but also try to steer them to where the bulk of people are just to help, you know, help not spread things too thin. So if people want to get started in contributing right now, even before you've sort of made improvements to that onboarding process, where's the best place they should look? Should they start with the website? Uh, can they easily find the GitHub? Um, like, is there a GitHub organization and things like that? Yep. So we are Node-RED on GitHub is the organization. Node-RED.org is the site. Um, you know, we've got links from the site to Discourse Forum, to our Slack team, uh, you know, ev everything you would expect. And really... Yeah, you know, come along, get involved, come say hi in Slack. You know, we are, I think, you know, being self-critical, there, there is more I can do in the, on the GitHub side 
have more issues that are labeled to help people see where they could get started, that type of stuff. It's that sort of stuff that for the people interested in contributing at that level, I think you know, there, there's more to be done. But you know, there, there's certainly a, a healthy backlog of ideas for the project. So yeah, nodred.org is, is the place to start. And if people want to be on the other side of it and just um, consume that library and get started with it, you would recommend the same resources as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, get started there. There's lots of ways you can install it. We have pretty much a one-click install on the Raspberry Pi to get it installed on the Pi, which you know, makes it a great experience to you know, just start playing with it really quickly. There's a whole ton of really cool tutorials that people have created. I'm busy working on a whole series of videos that we'll have out for you know, in a couple of weeks to help you know, that getting started experience. Yeah, and I, I think one thing is you know, just get stuck in that I think often when we do workshops and we show people it, it's that um, that initial apprehension turns to you know, realization that you can do something with it. Quite, you, know, you can do something quite powerful with it really quite quickly once you just understand what's what and what you need to do. Yeah, I heard it's used in a lot of workshops and things like that. And I think that's a testament to how easy it is actually to get started with it. Absolutely. And I think that's you know, certainly from the developer advocacy point of view. You know, we use it not because we want to show them Node-RED, but because we want them you know, to use some service in our cloud. But when you've only got an hour with them, you don't want to have to deal with lines of code for an SDK. And you, know, you can only go so far when you're waiting for the whole room to type in bits of code to drive an SDK. So the fact that Node-RED abstracts out all of that, people can understand the value of a service and what a service is capable of much quicker and see it without having to get uh, weighed down by the code. I think that's a really awesome description of the product overall. So I, I wanted to thank you, Nick, for joining us today. And, and I really loved digging into the technical details of Node-RED and things like that. So that's kind of at least in renewed my enthusiasm to also just give it another visit too. And yeah, again, thank you so much. And I wish you all the best with the release upcoming and we'll all be excited to check it out. All right, thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor, share this show with a friend. We're just have a podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things around here at ChangeLaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash ChangeLaw. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLaw.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.